Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, where we talk about techniques that will sharpen our writing skills. I'm Jim Thayer. I want to mention something about plotting that I'm not sure about for every writer and reader, but I know it with certainty for me, so I'll talk about it here. Regarding writing, it isn't my way or the highway, of course. You may have a different, a different take on this subject. Some incidents are just too much to write about and read about. They upset many readers too much. These scenes, in a novel or a movie, involve a character's death. Not just a death, but the way it is presented. I'm not talking about really graphic deaths, which most of us know not to write about, because at some point it turns into death porn, uh, and we don't want to write or read that. I'm talking about something else. Novels and movies have lots of deaths, but some scenes involve elements that are more disturbing, uh, and I'm not talking just about being graphic. They they involve deaths in scenes that are so emotional and wrong that it makes me uh, intensely dislike the scene, and because of it, uh, my pleasure in the movie or novel is greatly reduced. I'll mention a couple of examples of death scenes that are too much. When you hear my examples, you might think, but that's what made these novels and movies great. Uh, These scenes affected us, and we remembered them. Uh, You might be right. But I'm also right in that there are some scenes that are too vivid and emotional and wrong that I won't write them and don't want to read or watch them. They're too much. Here are a couple of examples. There's the hanging scene in the novel Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Uh, Two ex-Texas Rangers, Gus and Call, catch the rustlers called the Suggs brothers, and they find with them their friend Jake Spoon. Gus and Call hang Jake Spoon alongside the Suggs brothers. This scene has stuck in my craw for 37 years. Gus and Call are no longer rangers at this scene, uh, when this scene takes place. They are civilians, and they take it upon themselves to hang three people. It's a lynching, and a gross error on the part of Gus and Call that calls into question everything we liked about them. I still like that novel. It's a wonderful novel, but that scene uh, rose my hackles, raised my hackles. Here's a second example, a drowning scene in the movie Titanic. Margaret Rice is a third-class passenger on the Titanic, and she, she's along with her young son and daughter. When the Titanic hits the iceberg, she and her children were locked behind the third-class gates. In the end, she took her son and daughter back to their cabin and told them a bedtime story we see the inrushing water and the three perish in their room together. 1,500 people died on the Titanic, and I'm sure there were in real life unbelievable life-or-death scenes. This scene in the movie involving the mother and her children trapped in their room and drowning is intensely memorable. I just don't want to watch it.
I've never watched the movie Titanic again because of that one scene. And remember the knifing scene in the movie Saving Private Ryan where Private Mellish is slowly stabbed through the chest by a German soldier? The German pushes his knife uh, through uh, Mellish's chest and at the same time shushes him, essentially saying, Don't complain. I hated that scene. Sure, war is cruel, but the cruelty and malevolence and sadism of the scene made me intensely dislike that wonderful movie. I've never watched it again because I don't want to see that scene. A prominent New York literary agent on his website says he doesn't want to receive submissions of novels where children are hurt. Why? Because he doesn't want to read about such stuff. I don't either. I I never read novels where children are hurt. Life is too short for that. In one of my novels written some years ago, I have a scene involving a violent and sadistic death. And whenever anyone mentions that novel to me, it's that scene they talk about. And it's always something like, oh, well, that, scene, that scene, wow. Which I, I take means they didn't really like it, but they remember it. Uh, let me say I'm proud of that novel. But were I to write it again, I'd write the scene differently. It was just too much. The common denominator in these scenes is cruelty, whether by the sea or or by people. It's cruelty regarding characters we like. So we might think about avoiding slow and cruel deaths in our novels. These scenes might be memorable, but they have the elements of a snuff film. Some things are too much, and for me, watching a character die in a slow and cruel way doesn't work. Well, you might reply... But fiction isn't a day at Disneyland. Life and, de- uh, life and death are hard, and so fiction should be hard. You're right, but not for me. And I suspect a lot of readers agree with me. I want to be entertained when I read a novel or watch a movie. I do not read fiction or go to the movies to be shown how cruel the world can be. Uh, for me, I, I don't read or, or watch a movie to be morally enlightened being made upset by some clever writer who's pushing the boundaries of cruelty and sadism isn't entertainment. I want entertainment. You might agree or disagree. It's not my way or the highway. Speaking of the Titanic, I have a relative who survived the sinking of the ship. Oh, he's a distant relative, my ninth cousin, twice removed. 17-year-old Jack Thayer survived the sinking. As the ship was going down, he jumped into the water and was able to reach a lifeboat called Collapsible B, lifeboat Collapsible B, which had been overturned. Uh, He climbed up onto the overturned vessel, and he and the others... uh, were able to keep it steady for some hours. Uh, Thayer, uh, my distant cousin, later recalled that the cries of hundreds of people in the water reminded him of the hum of locusts in Pennsylvania. After spending the night on the overturned life raft with some others, uh, 
Jack Thayer was rescued by the RMS Carpathia the next morning, as was his mother, who'd been in another lifeboat. Uh, Thayer was one of about 40 people who had jumped or had fallen into the water and survived. His father uh, perished that night. At the inquiry some months later, Jack Thayer reported that he saw the Titanic break into two as it went down. And this was, was widely disbelieved by the authorities. When the wreck was found by a submersible on the bottom of the ocean in 1985, the wreck was indeed in two pieces, about a third of a mile apart. Let's talk about one of my favorite subjects, and that's describing characters, specifically using details to show, not tell, about a character. I've mentioned before that readers will remember our main character long after the novel's plot has been forgotten. How can we develop such a character, one the reader gets involved with and often wants to be with during uh, the character's journey? And how can we develop villains and secondary characters that are, are vivid for the readers? How's this done? We should use visual details to suggest more than the character's appearance. This is showing rather than telling. And here's the key. Each item or mannerism that the writer chooses to describe the character should do double duty. It should create an image in the reader's mind, and it should reveal or show something about the character. Here are some techniques, eight of them. And this list is about using details to show the reader about our character. I can't remember where I got this list. It's These eight techniques are not from me, and I wish I did remember so I could credit the creator of this list. I didn't make a footnote regarding the source. This list is by someone else, and it's so good I wrote it down. But the explanations and examples I'll talk about following each entry are from me. Uh, I, I created them. Number one, use appearance to indicate personality. Uh, we should choose details when we describe our character that match our character's inner self. In Carrie by Stephen King, uh, the author describes Carrie's blemished skin, her passive posture, and the colorless hair uh, because they suggest an unattractive person, a victim. He uses the words stolidly, dispirited, sogginess, letting the water run off her, even splat to describe the water uh, bouncing off her. Splat is associated with being hit. We learn a lot about Carrie from S Stephen King's description of her, her uh, a physical description. And listen to how Margaret Mitchell chooses some details to describe Scarlet. Scarlett O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when caught by her charm, as the Tarleton twins were. In her face were uh, sharply blended the delicate features of her mother, a coast aristocrat of French descent, uh, 
and the heavy ones of her florid Irish father. But it was an arresting face, pointed of chin, square of jaw. Her eyes were pale green without a touch of hazel, starred with bristly black lashes and slightly tilted at the ends. Above them, her thick black brows slanted upward, cutting a startling oblique line in her magnolia skin. The author, Margaret Mitchell, sets out Scarlett's square jaw, aggressive eyebrows, and feminine skin and lashes. Uh, uh, Margaret Mitchell emphasizes the contradictions within Scarlett's nature. Uh, a delicate southern belle with a will of steel. Number two, use a character's own reaction to his appearance to indicate his personality. This is from uh, the novel Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Here is uh, her description of Sylvie Fisher. After a while, they would turn on the radio and start brushing Sylvie's hair, which was light brown and hung down to her waist. The older girls were expert at building it into, a pompad into pompadours with ringlets at ear and nape. Sylvie crossed her legs at the ankles and read magazines. When she got sleepy, she would go off to her room and take a nap, and come down to supper with her gorgeous hair rumpled and awry. Nothing could induce vanity in her. What do we learn from this physical description? Sylvie has long, thick brown hair, but we also learn that she's impassive to her own beauty. She's unimpressed with it. Uh, rather than participate, she lets her sisters fiddle with her hair, and then she destroys their creation by sleeping on it. We learn a lot from this physical description. How does our character feel about her own appearance? Uh, is she proud, uh, indifferent, dissatisfied, or, or jealous of uh, handsomer people? Number three, we can use our character's appearance to indicate a temporary situation. What I mean is, use physical details to show how the character is feeling at the moment. Uh, here's an example from Judith Guest's novel, Ordinary People. He does a quick look in the mirror. The news isn't good. His face, chalk white, is plagued with a weird, constantly erupting rash. This is not acne, they assured him. What it was, they were never able to discover. Typical. He tries to be patient as he waits for his hair to grow out. Everything's okay. He's, he's here, wearing his Levi's boots and jersey shirt, just like everybody else. All cured. Nobody panic. So we readers know from this wording that Conrad, the character, didn't always have acne, hacked up hair, and an intense concern with his dressing normally. These are temporary conditions. They show he's still damaged from his mental illness. Here's another example from the romance Friday's Child by Georgette Heyer. The Viscount looked her over. She was a very young lady, and she did not at this moment appear to advantage. The round gown she wore was an unbecoming shade of pink, and had palpably come to her at second hand, since it seemed to have been made originally for a larger lady. In her hands she held a crumpled and damp handkerchief. 
There were tear stains on her cheeks, and her wide gray eyes were reddened and a little blurred. Her dusky ringlets, escaped from a frayed ribbon, were tumbled and very untidy. Here, uh, her reddened eyes and her tear-stained cheeks and messy hair are not indicative of her usual state. She's unhappy right now. So this description accomplishes two things at the same time. It lets the reader visualize her appearance. She's young and small and dark-haired. And it shows us her temporary state of mind. Conversely, uh, Stephanie Plum, the bounty hunter in Janet Ivanovich's novels, usually wears casual clothes. But in uh, the novel Eleven on Top, she's just quit her job, and uh, after having been made to roll in garbage by a bail jumper she was chasing, and so she goes home. This is Janet Ivanovich. I drove back to my apartment, took a shower, and got dressed up in a stretchy white tank top and a tailored black suit with a short skirt. I stepped into four-inch black heels, fluffed up my almost shoulder-length curly brown hair, and added one last layer to my mascara and lipstick. What did we learn? Uh, She's tailored. She has a short skirt. She's adding one last layer. We learn a lot about her personality from this physical description. The lesson here uh, is if you decide to to describe a character at a moment of emotion or tension, pick details that do double duty. They build an image and show the emotion. Number four, use dress to indicate personality. A character in our novel can choose his own clothes most often. So clothing is a good tool to show the reader about the character's personality. Here is John Irving's description of Jenny Fields in The World According to Garp. Uh, Note Jenny's reaction to her own clothing. In Jenny's opinion, her breasts were too large. She thought the ostentation of her bust made her look cheap and easy. She liked the simple, no-nonsense nurse's uniform. The blouse of the dress made less of her breasts. The shoes were comfortable and suited to her fast pace of walking. What do we learn about Jenny from this description? She likes her sensible shoes and sexless nursing uniform because she is sensible and sexless. The author has shown the character's personality by the character's choice in clothing. Here is a description of Dominique Francon in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. She had gray eyes that were not ovals, but two long rectangular cuts edged by parallel lines of lashes. She had an air of cold serenity and an exquisitely vicious mouth. Her face, her pale gold hair, her suit seemed to have no color, but only a hint just on the verge of the reality of color, making the full reality seem vulgar. Here we're shown her, sub, uh, Ayn Rand describes her subtle suit, which makes actual colors look vulgar, shows the reader, and, and Ayn Rand with this description is showing the reader that the character is elegant and disdainful. Here's number five. Use details of the environment to indicate personality. 
In Sue Grafton's A is for Alien, the first in, in her long series, a wonderful series, about Detective Kinsey Milhone, we learn that Kinsey lives sparsely. My name is Kinsey Milhone. I'm a private investigator licensed by the state of California. I'm 32 years old, twice divorced, no kids. My apartment is small, but I like living in a cramped space. I've lived in trailers most of my life, but lately they've become too elaborate for my taste, so now I live in a one-room bachelorette. I don't have pets. I don't have houseplants. This apartment contains nothing that might shackle Kinsey. She has chosen this sparse place, one she can leave quickly and stay away from for a long time. This is the author's way of showing the reader that Kinsey is a loner. She's not materialistic, and she's wary of close bonds. We, all, we get this from this description. Number six, use personal taste to indicate personality. A home can indicate a character, and so can anything else our character chooses. Her car, food, drink, music. Someone who drives a Corvette has a different personality than someone who drives a Ford. Someone whose bed stand has a volume of Sartre has a different personality than someone who has a volume of Betty and Veronica. Number seven. Use mannerisms to indicate personality. In Stephen King's Carrie, Carrie White stands with her head bent. Uh, Jenny Fields, in The World According to Garp, walks quickly, swinging her arms. In the Andromeda strain, quote, Jaggers rubbed his hands as Menchik and Comros sat down, end quote. Jaggers is eager, and we can tell that because he's rubbing his hands, and we can also tell that he likes to lord his knowledge over people. Number eight, the last one. Use other senses to indicate personality. You can describe uh, our, uh, your character in terms of sound, smell, feel, and maybe even taste. F. Scott Fitzgerald's Daisy Buchanan, whose, quote, voice was full of money, end quote. John Steinbeck's Tom Joad spends day after day tasting dust. Does our character always smell of the barnyard uh, or always smells of lilacs? Is our character always cool to the touch? Does she speak in a voice that sounds like steam escaping? We can imply the character's personality by using these sensory details. So, we should use visual details of our character to show her personality. Every item we choose to describe our character and everything he chooses for himself should do double duty. They should first create an image and second show something about the character. I want to mention another way to describe characters. One, I think, that is fun and that readers appreciate. And that's adding a quirk. My brother John is an orthopedic surgeon. And when he eats an apple, he eats the entire thing except the stem, which he throws away. 
I have no idea why he did this. Uh, our parents didn't have much money when we were growing up, but they had enough so that eating the seeds in the core of an apple wasn't required. His apple eating is a reminder to me that readers find these quirks remarkably interesting in characters. The odd behavior reminds the reader of himself. If not uh, that particular quirk, then because we all have quirks and they're a reminder of our humanity. Orson Scott Card says, quote, the way to make a character instantly memorable without leading the audience to expect them to do much more is to make them eccentric, exaggerated, or obsessive. Uh, Orson Scott Card was talking about minor characters in that paragraph, but major characters can also benefit from a quirk. Some of these uh, little oddities might be central to the character, and others might be uh, harmless add-ons. Some, uh, some quirks might regard their appearances. Some might regard their habits. But all of them, uh, quirks grab a reader's attention and most make the character sympathetic and memorable. Here are a couple of my uh, uh, favorite quirks in, in novels. In the Aubrey Maturin series, written by Patrick O'Brien, the physician and spy, Stephen Maturin, will drop almost anything he's doing if he sees an unusual bird, and he'll run after it with his telescope. I find that to be charming. In the Sherlock Holmes novels, Holmes uses cocaine. Opiates can be and are a a scourge today, but back then, Uh, When the novel was written, cocaine was a funny little habit, I suppose, and it's a quirk in the novel. Ebenezer Scrooge uh, eats a thin gruel in the evening. Uh, uh, Scrooge might not be likable at this point in the novel, but that that a, a wealthy man eats gruel might be a reason to sympathize with him or not. Nero Wolfe's partner, the private investigator Archie Goodwin, drinks only milk, even in a tavern. Uh, Archie Goodwin is a man of the streets, but he doesn't drink beer or whiskey, just milk. Ignatius J. Riley, in A Confederacy of Dunces, wears a hunting cap. <laughs> That's so odd, I still remember it. Who wears a hunting cap? Maybe my favorite quirk of all time is in 100 Years of Solitude, where the character eats asparagus every day so he can smell it in his urine. And Shirley, in Anne of Green Gables, tells people to add an E to Anne. So it's spelled A-N-N-E, she tells them. I find that to be charming and memorable. That's an easy way to make our characters stick in the reader's mind. Give them a quirk, something fun to remember. We've come to this, uh, the end of this episode. I'm sure glad you were along for it. Uh, This is Jim Thayer. Until next time, please keep tapping those keys.